and welcome to the Align Live podcast. My name is Pam Brown and I'm your host. Some of you may know me from my days as co-host of the morning show on WBAI Pacifica Radio. Others of you may know me from my work as a social justice activist and scholar. And others of you still may know me as co-owner of New York's first wellness studio, Align Brooklyn. One thing all of you know about me is that I love to speak my mind. Thank you for joining me on The Aligned Life, where we connect the dots between wellness, our communities, politics, and our world. Hello, and thank you for joining me today. Today, we are talking with Anna Levy-Warren. Anna is a licensed clinical psychologist who has focused her career on helping individuals with complicated learning problems and executive functioning challenges. She runs a few companies at the intersection of psychology and education doing in-home therapy, coaching and tutoring for individuals and families. Okay, Anna, let's just jump right into this. Mental health. We are in the middle of a global pandemic. We've had leadership in air quotes, put out tons of mixed messages. Wear a mask, don't wear a mask. It's not airborne, it is airborne. We have a president, also in air quotes, who has repeatedly lied to the public about the dangers, even more than likely to the extent of lying about when and how he himself contracted COVID. We have a medical industrial complex that's on a mad rush for a vaccine that more than half of the country is afraid to take. And we just have a profound lack of trust in our public institutions from our government to the media, all of it. What does all of this uncertainty really mean for our mental health? <laughs> that is a very big question after that wonderful <laughs> introduction to how things are in this moment. Um, you know, it certainly means what you can expect, right? Which is a rise in just, you know, not, not just primitive fears, but the uh, sort of the the anticipatory anxiety um, that that what it means to have so many unknowns, so few anchors, so little stability, and when I say anticipatory anxiety, I'm really talking about sort of this idea that we don't know what's coming, and we don't have in both an, an external and real way, but that internally we're losing our maps, and when we lose our maps. You know, when we lose our ability to look forward to things, to break things down into their necessary pieces that allow us to get things done at a daily level, when all of our routines change, you know, we get scared, we get sad, we get irritable, we really, and then the part of our brain that we need most, which is our prefrontal cortex to sort of organize us and from an executive functioning lens really help us achieve, starts to shut down. So, so to me, what this uncertainty means for all of us is a a real regression towards sort of almost like earlier phases of our life to a childlike state where we are more fearful, less in control, and, and don't know what's coming. Wow, that's really, really intense. And it describes a lot of how I've been personally feeling. The idea of losing our mapping is such a really, that's a really fascinating idea. And so, when we talk about people becoming sad, 
how do we distinguish sadness from more formally depression? You know, it's a great question. And the way clinicians, you know, differentiate these things is, you know, we have a guidebook, right? It's called the DSM, right? It, it helps right. us, you know, map out what's happening. But, but the way that I really like to think about it is, is first of all, you know, you have to look at our context right now. We're in a period of collective trauma. The way in which we're all going to be reacting is not going to feel familiar. And the way in our functionality is going to shift. So, I, I, you know, I think that the, there's a collective experience to differentiate that from an individual who's having, for example, a major depressive episode really has to do with how long that's been going on, how much their mood has shifted from previous times, how functional they are. And there's a very specific, you know, list of criteria, but I always say, you know, feel free to check it, right? If you're, if you're having, if you're concerned about it, talk to a therapist, talk to a psychiatrist, go through the individual symptom checklist, you know, and we can figure that out. But for today, I think what's important is to really see this as, you know, a decrease in functioning is going to be what we're looking mm. for, along with a depressed mood for a prolonged period that's not just linked to the pandemic. Very interesting. I, I have this question as a lay person, and to be honest with you, as someone who doesn't tend towards depression, um, where over the last, I don't know, it maybe you'll tell me, but it feels to me over the last at least 25 years, there's been a push to say that sort of like talk therapy doesn't really necessarily help enough or help at all and that people require medication if they are clinically depressed at least and that medication is a necessity because of a brain chemistry shift and so i've just been wondering how how then do external factors influence that shift. I'm sure there's got to be a ton of research on that, but that shift in brain chemistry, how big are these external factors? How big is the pandemic in this situation? How big is substance abuse or isolation or job loss or stress? How, how do those things influence a clinical diagnosis, let's say, of depression, if, if at all? Well, that's such a great question. And what I will we'll start off by saying is, you know, the way, even the idea of talk therapy, right? There's so many different modalities, different ways people treat different forms of different, you know, psychiatric struggle. So I, you always need to be careful in these, when we get to these sort of more late terms, like talk therapy, that that's, that includes a lot. But what I will definitely say is in terms of depression, you know, I come from the idea that this is absolutely influenced by both your predisposition and sort of your physiological self, your, you know, there's a genetic component. And then of course, there's sort of the environmental and like larger systemic issues that contribute. So the model that considers all of those things, you know, and, and different, you know, loss and trauma and, you know, the pandemics, all of these things just for different people have different kinds of impact, but they absolutely are all a part of how we consider any psychiatric diagnosis, that they contribute to, you know, whatever somebody is struggling with in the moment, that if you're more predisposed to depression, it may manifest that way, where for someone like you who doesn't, isn't as prone to depression, you, for example, could become more, you know, dysregulated or more anxious or, mm -hmm. or something else, that that's sort of what, what guides us. But I, I really see it as, a, you know, the intersections of all of these different pieces of our lives and not just about one thing. 
And are you seeing more and more people coming in with symptoms of depression and anxiety? I mean, that would be my guess, but Absolutely. what are you kind of, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, both formal, you know, I, I am depressed, I am anxious. And then just also a lot of amorphous sort of sadness, lack of clarity. I don't know what's going on. I feel honestly, the most common word that I've heard across friends, clients, patients is exhaustion, right? Like, I don't know where this is coming from, but I'm exhausted emotionally. I am so ego depleted. I'm so worn down that it's hard for me to even know what the problem is but that there's a relentlessness to this period for people who are parents, for people who are essential workers, for people who are of color, of, for anybody who is out there in the world that is actually exposed to most of what you named at the beginning of this, you know, that basically there's an exhaustion and a relentlessness to this period. So that's what I actually hear most. Hmm. And so you've mentioned that different groups of people, different sort of social groups are probably experiencing this differently. We have heard most recently about this idea of the she session. So the recession affecting women predominantly and the rough numbers I heard, I, I would have to look up the specifics, but the rough numbers were that in September, something like just over a million people um, left the job market, meaning that they are no longer participants in the job market. They're not looking for a job. They're just like, I'm out. That's it. And about 875,000 of them or something somewhere like that were women. So it was like 75%, 80% women who had to leave the job market entirely. And so I'm just wondering from your perspective, like are certain groups more impacted, uh, particularly what's the effect on women? That's a good question. I mean, I definitely hear more about women, you know, and it just feels it, you know, it's not a regression because it's always been the case. There has been some subtle upward trending, but, you know, basically we revert back to this model of women being the caretakers and more responsible for what's going on on the domestic front with children. And yet there's still the expectation that they do everything else. You know, that's so what I hear from mothers, probably most predominantly of just a struggle. And, you know, you see the joking, and I think there was even a Times article written about substance use and an increase in substance use. But when the day has no demarcation of ending, right, when there's, you're doing childcare and working all day long in the same place every day as a woman, you know, there's this, like a desperation to have things you know, really break it up and a mm. need for a connection and closeness that's been really taken away. So I, I really feel that women have been so hard hit and I hear about it constantly in my practices. And so we're, are we really seeing more depression and sort of anxiety, these, these sort of go-to psychological ailments that are debilitating, but not necessarily taking you completely out of life? Are we really, are we seeing more of that with women? I certainly am. Yes. You are, yeah. Yes, I would, I, I'm yes. certainly hearing about that. And then what about the children? I mean, we've had a virtual assistant who um, had, was homeschooling three children who recently, you know, resigned because frankly, she, it was truly overwhelming to have to homeschool three children. I just wonder how are children experiencing this pandemic? 
I mean, listen, I, I think that there's no question as to the impact on children being overall negative, right? You know, and I think their developmental period is really crucial to think about, right? There are children who are, as a result of the pandemic, pandemic getting more time with their parents and less aware of the lack of social and peer connection. Now, is that negatively impacting them in the long term? We don't know. We're assuming it will have some impact, but littler children, you know, while it's important to see other kids, feel less of a conscious knowledge that they're not being with friends, right? So you get like more mommy and daddy time at a time when you really want it. But elementary school kids and middle schoolers and high schoolers who rely on social interaction as a way of differentiating, as a way of being independent, as a way of knowing themselves and figuring out identity-wise who they are and just being able to use peer influence to learn, you know, and, and social emotional growth. I mean, it's absolutely devastating, right? And there, and kids who have specialized learning needs and kids whose parents are now responsible for what used to be occupational therapy and counseling and speech and language and all the different services they received, you know, while everyone clearly has their hearts in the right place, um, you know, at an individual level at the DOE, that doesn't mean that the systems are able to actually get the children the support they need in the way that they actually need it. And that's devastating all around. And I think the regression we're seeing in children is real. Wow. Now, with children being sort of cooped up with their parents at home, how, how is that sort of, what can parents do? I mean, what can parents do to try to mitigate the damage of this pandemic? It sounds like with, with younger children, it's less damaging, but maybe harder on parents not having a break. But with older children, I can't even really imagine being sort of pulled out of high school. My, um, my nephew, one of my nephews didn't, was he didn't go back to college because of the pandemic. So I'm just kind of curious, um, what can parents do at each of the sort of various developmental age groups, I guess? You know, one of the most important things that I think parents can do is to try and use this period as an opportunity to create some new routines, to not let it be, well, now we don't have routine or now we don't have things to look forward to. But instead, well, everything has changed. And now instead of looking forward to, you know, soccer practice, we look forward to our family walk in the evening and, mm. and that, you know, and maybe we do a socially distanced and I, I actually really prefer the term physically distanced because it really does imply that, you know, we can't be emotionally connected in a physical space without being near each other, which is not great. But the idea is that we're trying to, you know, create social connection and things to look forward to and routines within this context and to try to keep a very, but I like to call anchors in the day, a lot of consistency that we always know we have a beginning, middle and end, that we always know that every day that we exercise, that we read, that we write, that we do a little math, that we reward that with screen time and that we connect with a friend. And that can be online, it can be in whatever way works for your family, but that it be consistent, that it be really what I like anchored, that it become routinized so that there's always this plan and that there are things to look forward to, even if they're tiny, even if there are, we're gonna play a family board game or you can play Roblox and connect with your friend online, that we don't just open it up and let it go. 
you know, you don't have free access to your iPad. You don't get to play Roblox throughout the day whenever you want, that we keep this kind of model that we had before, because that's actually what keeps kids feeling safe. That is so interesting. Um, it's also kind of what keeps adults feeling I yeah, think, yeah, safe too, yeah. right? Because we, we've kind of been thinking for our own business, you know, Align Brooklyn, that how do we support our community, the community that has been a part of the studio for so many years now in maintaining self-care you know, as like the big sort of catch all phrase for just taking some time out for, for cultivating yourself, cultivating your health, anything like that. And one of the main things that, that I think works for people right now is setting a time saying every day at this time, I either exercise, if I'm not exercising, I'm doing something else that I would consider in my personal category, my toolbox of self-care, just because without that consistency, it does feel like the days just sort of go on and on. And when do they end? When do they start? Weeks seem to really disappear very easily. And I think that as we've kind of supported people more and just finding a little bit of time that that's been a really big anchor. Um, and I, I really like that. So can you repeat the, the different categories? So exercise, um, see a friend. What were the other ones, Anna? Well, I was sort of, I was, I was, I, and I, listen, I want to be clear that I think for different families, the priority list is personal and I absolutely mm -hmm. defer to each family's decision-making around mm -hmm. this. I, I'm a huge advocate of exercise being on that list as I think we share that value, but we sure. researched, you know, that, that exercise and actually if I could add one more thing to mindfulness or meditation, meditation as a practice, just like the research backs this up so clearly that these are good things for children and for families. So those things are really crucial to anchor in a day, that one social interaction, at least with a peer. And then I think in terms of the neurocognitively or what we think academically, that kids should read every day, they should write every day, and they should do a little math every day. And, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and remember that we can be more open-minded than, you know, common core standards. If we go back to what's appropriate developmentally, it's, it's really about engaging and knowledge and being curious. So if your kid is reading and then you're asking them questions about it, and then they're writing a paragraph about it, and then you're, you know, calculate, if you're getting out a measuring tape and calculating, you know, um, the, the measurement of their bed so that you can buy, you know, new sheets or, you know, all of that is real learning, right? It, it doesn't have to look like it's coming out of a workbook to be important and significant to their growth. But going back to your question, you know, to me, it's the mindfulness or meditation, exercise, establishing routines that clearly have social peer interaction and those different sort of um, cognitive and academic components of the day. Now, Anna, one of the questions that we have um, or that I've had for a while, and I said we have because it's something that Chris and I have reflected on a lot, is really about social interaction during this time period. Mm -hmm. For me, it's not hard to interact via a screen, but for a lot of people, they don't necessarily feel like a Zoom call is a social interaction because it's not in real life right what is, is there are there differences between each person is that 
what is the validity of the idea of you know what I'm saying? What is the validity? Absolutely. Of that? Yeah, because I don't. I honestly like. I would rather take a class, an exercise class in person, but actually I can do it fine with a screen too. And yet yeah. I see that a lot of people don't feel that way. Yeah. And, and listen, I do think that that's personal and has so many different factors from, you know, the predisposition, temperamental aspects to neurocognitive profiles, meaning like the strength of their for example, executive functions to, you know, all of the ways they've been raised and what they've been exposed to. But ultimately, it's about what feels good to you. I think with children, it becomes a little more complicated because children, especially little children, they need nonverbal cues. They need to see people's faces. They need to see the way they move. It And, and that's what makes, obviously, masks so hard. But it also really does make, you know, you've probably seen elementary school kids or littler children with people who are particularly careful to wear those clear masks or to wear face shields. And that's because the way that our whole faith moves is how they learn. It's how they learn. That's how they get feedback. It's how they understand. And so it becomes really problematic when we don't have that kind of interaction. I also just want to talk, you know, you don't have to be a holistic human being or think about things in an alternative way to talk about people's energies, right? Energetically, you know what it's like to sit with someone. It's you, you feel something between you, you know, you really, that that's at, at every sort of physiological, emotional level, there's a difference between a screen interaction and an in-person interaction. Now your tolerance for going without that probably depends a lot on who, how much you're getting from the person you are or not living with right? People mm. are so much more lonely during this period if they're living at home and they're not having any physical touch and all of their social interactions are over Zoom. That feels very different than you and Chris who can interact and then the rest of your interactions are over Zoom, right? So it's, it's really about also that whole balance and ensuring that in some way you're getting that sort of energetic, nonverbal, physical touch level interaction because we need that as human beings most of us need that that is so incredibly interesting now anna a lot of the work that you do is on this idea of executive function which i'm embarrassed to say that i honestly i don't think i'd ever even heard of it until until i met you um, I, I had no that's idea. You've got, that's because you've got such strong executive functions. You don't even think I, about it. Who knew about that? You know, I don't know if it was also a thing really when I was growing up, honestly. No, no, it wasn't. Um, it feels like, so what is, what is this, what is executive function? And how do you think that that is hurt, helping and hurting people navigate this pandemic? We've all of a sudden we're like in this technological space that is not that easy for everyone to manage. Right. Well, I think that's, that's such a great question. I'm sorry, I skipped right over that. So you know, executive <laughs> functions, it's, you know, it's an umbrella term for an interrelated set of neurocognitive processes, which is really in the prefrontal cortex. It's really, you know, at the most superficial level and how most people think about it in terms of how it manifests is it's like the prioritization of what's important versus unimportant time management. The idea is sort of like organization and planning underneath that. It's like an organizing and sequencing in our whole brain, our internal filing cabinet for, you know, for example, but the, the way it, 
the way if the person or the, the person, huh, the, the little person in your brain, um, <laughs> directing traffic and helping you sort of with goal directed behavior, choosing what you do and what you don't do based on all of those different factors. Hmm. Um, at its very core, it's working memory, cognitive flexibility, and self control. And so, Really, you know, when I'm talking about that right now, and what I was mentioning at the beginning is that as we get more anxious and worried, just when we need our executive functioning most, our executive functions most, it closes, it basically like shuts down a little bit. So our capacity to make decisions or to, you know, um, make the family calendar that I think is so important, it, it's as wow. if we lose, we actually lose that capacity when we need it most. So I'm telling everybody, you know, find routines, anchor your day use timers, you know, make sure you're held accountable to these things. But for most people that feels so hard right now. And for people who have strong executive functions, you know, there's this feeling of loss of all of the ways that we used to manage it and having to kind of recreate that and needing certainty, needing things to look forward to, wanting the plan, feeling completely lost without that map we referred to earlier. And for people without, who have more challenges around executive functions, it becomes impossible to get anything accomplished. It becomes it's like you just want to lose yourself in the lack of structure of the day because it brings some pleasure, but it becomes very hard to actually get anything done. Hmm. Does that make wow. sense? It completely makes sense. And I see so much of myself in, in that. So what can, what, what should be done about this? I mean, if let's say that you're a person, well, let's start with myself. Let's say that you're a person who has pretty strong executive function skills and you are finding it disorienting, not having that thing to look forward to, you know, not having that goal that you can easily sort of pin down and say, okay, if I do X, Y, and Z, I can reach that goal. What should be done for somebody like me? And conversely, what should be done for the, for the opposite person who is more feeling a sense of, you know, the day is floating in a different kind of a way, but it's, but they are feeling a sense of like real confusion. Like I can't figure out what to do next now. What should be right. done for each of those personalities, I guess? I'm, I don't know. Is it even a personality thing? Or no, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, you could probably feel it as a personality difference. You know, it's like when I meet someone who has strong executive functions, I always, it's like I can kind of feel the energy that comes with sort of the need to organize or need to have those kinds of, um, you know, being very time oriented, you know, but it, it's not quite a personality or a temperamental configuration as much as a neurocognitive profile. But basically yeah. the way that I, to answer your question, I think that, you know, that the, the answer isn't dissimilar, but it's sort of how you get there that's different. You know, for someone like you, and I will also say like me in terms of executive functions, it becomes so important actually to have a very clear goal, right? So, you know, even Align's new coaching program, which I'm in, you know, I'm sorry, this was not planted. Right. I'm not pitching it, but really, <laughs> you know, the idea is that the idea of being coached and having very clear identifiable goals that you're held accountable to is it becomes crucial, right? So even if all of my, you know, I'm a runner and all of my races were canceled, I actually do still need to, even if it's a virtual race with friends, right. I need that because I need to know it's coming. And I need to set my goals based on it and work backward and know that I'm held accountable because that it, I find it relieving. 
it gives mm-hmm. me a sense of like a, a pure, you know, comfort to know that I, if that's what's happening. I know how it's going to happen. I know how to backward plan and chunk my time and get that right. I make sure that I exercise at the same time every day. I make sure that I have, you know, I follow the same rules that I just gave and I make sure that those are in my calendar and that there's not as much wiggle room as there would be before. Because before it's like I, there was enough other stability, but now mm-hmm. it's a, there are things that I absolutely cannot do without. And I'm not flexible about it because my mental health depends more on it. Right. So if I missed a day of exercise previously, I'm be just fine. But right. in this moment for people with, especially people who need those anchors, when you miss that is when you become vulnerable. So regulatory things like eating and sleeping and exercising are fundamental and you can't miss them. Right? Really, they, they have a different kind of impact. And then for people who don't have a strong executive function, it's actually just really, I think the external accountability piece in terms of having friends or having very simple, those like beginning, middle and end of the day structures that doesn't have to be rigid, but it's a sense of, I always have a flow and that flow is going to be consistently there so that I'm not, and and having deadlines that have other people that know about them and are external so that there's no like, oh, I'm going to drop something in the mailbox because that's never going to happen. That it goes on the calendar with an alert that you tell somebody that you put it in the mail, that all of those things just help to orient you differently towards the activity and make it sort of much more um, important and clear versus before where you would kind of assume that eventually you'd get there and that that would be okay. Yeah, it's so interesting. As part of our our program, which does include all of the classes and then sort of the community that's a Facebook community. And then the biggest part I think now is this coach coaching piece. And it, we've mm-hmm. called it, you know, accountability coaching, although you can't really hold someone else accountable. But the accountability system is very interesting because it just asks you to track. And really it's very flexible. Mostly people People are tracking just did I spend 15 minutes or 30 minutes on self-care and there are other kinds of bits but that's the gist of it but what's really interesting about it is I think that for people just having the notification it comes to you at eight in the morning um, and a little bit of like an educational lesson on a tidbit you know drink more water any of these basic things but some are more interesting than, than that um, many are more interesting than that but just having to say whether you did the thing or didn't do the thing on a daily basis and having that regularity, that morning reminder, here we are today, you know, I think that mm-hmm. that has supported a lot of people. I've also heard from other people, to be very honest about it, that they have felt like that it's reinforced a sense of failure for them too, because at this time, it's hard to do the things that we say that we're going to do in a different kind of a way because things are really unstable. And I've been sort of trying to reframe that for people saying, you know, just the act of tracking and there's research on this, which is fascinating, but just, you don't have to try to do the thing. You just have to commit to tracking the thing and you'll find yourself doing whatever that thing is. So if it's spend 15 minutes a day on self-care, if you're, if you're saying, I didn't do it, I didn't do it, I didn't do it. All of a sudden you find yourself, I did do it. I did 
do it and you just automatically start to improve. Do you have any thoughts on a tracking system like that for people's, you know, like mental health right now? Is that good for everyone or is that, you know, for me, it seemed obvious that that would be good for me, but I can <laughs> see that <laughs> you're laughing because you know me well enough yeah. to know that I love lists and I will track everything that I possibly can. And it's just how it is for me, but I'm, I, it has made me reflect like, you know, I never want the business to be about me. It should be for other people. And I wouldn't want to set up a system that was actually hurting people, of course, right? So I'm just curious, like, what do you think of a system like that? Is it good for everyone, actually? Is it not? What do you think? Such a great question. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I always am. I always am. I mean, again, it's, it's so interesting about tracking in that way is, you know, again, I relate to that. And of course, I'd like to track everything as well. But the, the really crucial part of tracking is that it's about an individual's growth edge. And what I mean by that is, you know, you don't, for you or for me, uh, we could probably list 10 activities we'd want to track and we would feel amazing about tracking all 10 of those activities. For somebody who is not as inclined toward it, who, for example, like that's, that feels uh, like it, they have an avoidance of any, things that make them anxious, and then you put 10 things down, they are never going to look at that tracker. Like that tracker in and of itself becomes the problem. So right. their, growth, their growth edge is to pick one thing. And that one thing could be eat breakfast in the morning. That one thing could be take my vitamins. It could be so simple. It could be even make my bed. Right. It could be something that is going to bring joy and satisfaction. And the most important part for me about the tracking is that it brings a sense of success. So if you check that box every day and you feel good about it, that success and success makes you it's, it's a pleasurable feeling and it makes you want to do more. Where if the tracker becomes something that's tracking a problem or making you see and feel like a failure, then it becomes something you avoid and it adds to the problem. So it's all about the way in which it's used and the way in which it's really paying attention to an individual's area of growth and where they actually are and where they want to be, not their idealized version of what should happen. That's such an incredible, incredible insight, I think. And it's definitely something that I'm going to figure out ways to implement as we also, you know, I mean, we're just figuring this thing out. It's sort of nuts because we were doing one thing and then one day it was like, it all blew up and, <laughs> and we were tossed into trying to figure out a problem that no one really has a full solution for, honestly. So that is so important. And it's interesting because some people have asked to, for example, track um, blue light, especially that one's a really hard one. Like it's hard for me to turn off my phone an hour before bed, even though I know that that's good for me. And what am I doing on the phone, at, you know, at like nine or 10 at night, like nothing like scrolling through Facebook or Instagram. So <laughs> no more of that, Pam, no more of that. No screens exactly. before bed. So, you know, <laughs> like I know that, but like it does help me to track even for me if it's a failure. I found that at first I couldn't do it at all. And then as I had to say, I didn't do it, I didn't do it, I didn't do it. All of a sudden it did propel me to do it. So yeah. anyways, yeah, it's really fascinating. We're living at a really, at a, at sort of a critical turning point in our in our world and this crisis is really 
exacerbating or or making that more clear i guess it's exacerbating that and also making the crisis that we're living in more obvious to us all do you have any final final thoughts or suggestions for us on how we can take care of our mental health really and just try to continue to be as well as possible i don't want to say be well because i think that no one's really well in the same way that we thought of that even a few months ago but really to be more well to navigate this with a sense of resilience i guess that's the that's the right way of putting it yeah i think that's such a great question and such a great framework i think to me that you know the pieces that i would pull out are number one be gentle with yourself as a dear friend said to me and especially people who are used to training for things and holding ourselves accountable that there's a, also a lens of this is a different time. It requires a different level of self-care and a different level of gentleness with ourselves around what we do and don't do. But, num but number two in that is do find things to hold yourself accountable to that work for you and are individually oriented, not that someone else tells you to do, but that work for you and what you need. And definitely exercise, meditate, <laughs> and do that kind of personalized self-care that regulates your system during a time when we're so easily dysregulated. Do not let your sleeping, your eating, your exercising, your meditation go, because those are the things that are going to hold us together right now um, and then allow us to show up at a community and activist level that we need to. Well, thank you so very much, Anna Levy Warren. How can people find you? <laughs> Thank you for asking. Um, I have an executive functioning coaching company for anyone who needs that kind of support for kids. That's organizationaltutors.com. And for adults, that's called steeladvising.com, which is strategic thinking and efficient and effective leadership. And last, but certainly not least, I'm we have an in-home therapy practice that also does remote work right now um, based in Brooklyn, New York, and that is Dwellness Therapy. Um, and I would look forward to hearing from anyone to answer further questions and to be available for any of those services. Well, it sounds like you are, as always, up to way too much, Anna. And <laughs> thank you so much for cutting out a little bit of time for this, this discussion that we had today. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining Thanks us. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate your time.